This evening, I wanted to open with one of my favorite psalms found in the book of Psalms. Psalm 139, and it says this, Where will I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. I don't, you've probably heard that song before. It's always been one of my favorite. Rich Mullins sang a song about it. Basically, I could, I could run from you all the way to the gates of hell, and there you would still pursue me. And we talked about that last week as we covered the first three verses of Jonah, um, that Jonah ran from God, and in his running, he couldn't hide. He, he cannot hide from God. And so we talked about why we, as believers, run from God, how the different ways that we run from God, and what effect that running has on our lives. And today, we're going to end chapter one. We're going to look at the next section of chapter one. And we're going to see specifically how God responds to Jonah's rebellion and Jonah's running. Or, or another way that we could say that is, we're going to see today how God responds to you when you run from God. Here's his response. And so we ended last week with chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Jonah runs from God. He pays a fare. He boards a ship. And they push off. And now today we're going to pick up where we left off. What happens next? What does God do? And our text this evening starts at verse 5. says this, but. So, so Jonah tried to run from God. Jonah tried to flee. And the first word we see on God's response is, but. But God is going to respond in a certain way. And the way God responds is he hurls a great wind upon the sea. Now, tonight, we're going to see a lot of hurling going on, okay? And when I say hurling, I don't mean the kind of hurling you did in college. I'm talking about that kind of hurling where you aggressively throw something, okay? The word hurl means I'm from Texas, and I just learned recently that when I mean hurl, I'll sometimes say chunk. Have you ever heard this before? And I say, I just learned this recently because one of the members of our team asked me, hey, you're from Texas. Do you say chunk? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't say chunk. And then the very next week, I was standing on the lakeside with my son, Josiah. And I'm like, Josiah, chunk it. Chunk that rock in the water. And I was like, oh, man, I do say chunk. In fact, I say it a whole bunch. So today we're going to see a lot of chunking, all right? A lot of, a lot of hurling. God is going to hurl a storm. And then we're going to see these sailors. They're going to hurl their cargo off the ship. And then we're even going to see Jonah say, hurl me into the sea. And so make no mistake about it. The author wants us to see all this chunking going on. He wants us to see the hurling. And we're also going to see this progression of fear in response to it. So the first thing that happens is God hurls a storm. And I want to tell you about this storm. Because I mentioned this last week, but the author of Jonah is just phenomenal. He uses every tool in his basket to write a well-crafted piece of literature. And we're going to talk about some of those pieces um, tonight. But he wants us to see how huge and ginormous and powerful this storm is. He hurled it onto this ship. And we know it's powerful because, first of all, the, the, the sailors, the mariners, they're freaking out. 
And one thing I know about sailors is they don't fear very easily. Do you know what I'm saying? They don't freak out. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie Jaws. It was filmed in 1975, the year after my birth. Um, but I've seen it. Have you seen the movie Jaws? Okay, cool. So there's this scene in the movie Jaws. This big man-eating shark's been pounding up against the ship for several hours. And Quint, he's the crazy captain of this boat. He's an ex-Navy man. He's steering the ship and trying to get out of the way of the shark. And he's calm and poised and collected. And he's flipping switches and pulling levers. And I don't know what he's doing. But then this fire breaks out in the, in the gully or the galley or whatever you call that. And in, in the midst of that, he's like, hey, could you... Uh, Maybe put that out over there. <laughs> and it's a notable scene because Richard Dreyfus looks at him like, how could you be so calm? Well, because he's a sailor and sailors are calm in the midst of stress, but not our sailors in this story of Jonah. They are freaking out and they're so wigged out that they're throwing the cargo off of the ship. And this cargo is precious. I mean, they're going to Tarshish. It's a year journey. And Tarshish is a wealthy export import city. They want to make money on this cargo. And so they don't want to throw it out, but they're throwing it out. They're going crazy. They're thinking that they can lighten the load of the ship. And then they start crying out and calling out to their gods. Oh, God, save us, save us, save us. Because it's obvious that this storm is a God-sized storm. Some God has hurled this on us. And so they start to pray to their gods. And the author does some interesting things in Hebrew. The first thing he does is he um, personifies the ship. This isn't so interesting because we do this, right? We name ships and we give them female names and we call them she. But he says of the ship, she is threatening. She's making threats. So she's threatening to break up. One way that you might hear that on a movie is, she's threatening to break up, laddies. Or one commentator said a real healthy translation is, she's becoming a nervous wreck. <laughs> this is a huge storm. Another thing he does is he makes a pun out of the Hebrew language. He takes a Hebrew word, he twists it a little bit so that the word itself sounds like the verb that he's trying to use. So he says about the waves that are banging up against this ship in Hebrew, hishbalar, la hishbalar, hishbalar, la hishbalar, which sounds like waves, hishbalar, la hishbalar, beating up against this ship. Now, that's a Hebrew literary tactic to increase force, to, to make this thing seem awesome. So I want you to see this. The author wants you to see this. He wants you to see it in HD or 3D, right? He wants you to hear it in 7.1 Dolby surround sound. He wants you to see that this storm is, are you guys seeing this? This storm is huge, okay? It's, it's awesome, why is that so important, Mike? Why does he want us to see that this storm is awesome? Because here's why. If you run from God, he is going to sick a giant, nasty storm on your little, nasty, rebellious self. You got that? That's what you thought I was going to say, right? Or maybe that's what you've been taught before. You run from God, he's going to sick it to you. I have thought that. But can I just tell you, I don't think that that's true at all. I think that's the furthest thing from the truth. And I think that the book of Jonah is making great pains to show us that's not the truth. This storm is not a punishment. Can you hear that? This storm is not a punishment from God. It's a rescue mission. 
He is trying to save Jonah from his own destruction. And God shows us, I think, in this story, how extravagant he is to save us. That he would spare no expense to save even a sinner, even a rebel. And I want you to know tonight that he has spared no expense to save you. I'm, I'm going to give you an illustration, if I can, in, in relating to the storm. I'm guessing, I'm hoping that you've seen at least one of the trilogies of the Lord of the Rings. Can I get a show of hands? No, okay, it's all right. You, you go get there. They're getting scarier, I'll tell you that. The Hobbit just came out on theater. It is spooky. It's even worse than the first one, I think. Um, but in all of those trilogies in the film, there's this scene that I, I want to describe to you. There's a character in these stories. His name's Gandalf. And I'm confident that Tolkien wrote him into the story because he's a Christ-like figure. He, it's obvious he is Christ. He's a meek and mild and humble little old man wizard. But then there are, then there are moments, and you see it really well in the film, um, that his power just sort of kind of peeks out a little bit, just a little bit. Like in one scene, and this happens several times actually, so I can say like in three scenes, Gandalf's in a room with all these elves and, you know, goblins and I don't know, um, trolls or hobbits and people, and they're all arguing and they're fighting over the ring or they're fighting over the hobbit or they're fighting over where they're going next. And then very quietly, but unmistakably, this dark cloud sort of rises up over the back of Gandalf and fills the room and the room begins to shake and you hear this low rumble. And then Gandalf's voice goes up over that sound and says, make no mistake. And then it all sucks back again. He's like, hey, I'm just trying to tell you, you need to listen to me. And I think it's so cool because here's this meek and mild little old wizard, but there is power. There's a lot of power. And we just get to see a taste of it. Can I tell you that this storm is just a peak of God's power? It's just a taste. God made the universe with a, with a sound. Think about this for a second. He said, let there be light and then stars. <laughs> it blows my mind. God says, I'm going to create galaxies with a breath. I'm going to move mountains. I'm going to move oceans. So God is so powerful, so amazing, and yet he moves in this extravagant way, when you think about it, that he would become a baby. That, that he would become a baby born to a peasant in some hole in Bethlehem. How can the infinite become an infant? How can the creator of the universe allow his very creation to slaughter him on a wooden tree? Is our God not extravagant? Is this not God pulling out all the stops, sparing no expense to show us his great love, to demonstrate his great love for sinners? If God did not spare his own son, if he spared no expense, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? So I need you to hear this. The storm is not God's punishment for a rebellious sinner. The storm is God pulling out all the stops, saying, I want you to know how much I love you, and I will not let you run from me. I'm going to rescue you, even from you. 
Now, I want to I discuss that. Does seeing the storm as a rescue mission rather than a punishment shift any paradigms you might have had about God or more specifically about your life circumstances? We have three minutes. Let's discuss that. Well, like, like these sailors, I, I, I've been wrestling with this this week, actually, and I want to discuss it more. But like these sailors, we don't recognize sometimes God's extravagant pursuit after us as God's extravagant pursuit after us, but rather we see it maybe as some hurdle that we need to get over. So this storm is going to take my life. I need to muster up some energy to get over it uh, rather than seeing it as a rescue mission rather from Jonah or rather from us. And really we can't fault them for that because most of us, when we have storms in our life, don't say, oh, God must be trying to get my attention because he loves me. Most of us say, how in the world could this happen to me? And we try to work through it. And so I would like to later on discuss how do we do that? How do we know if it's God's storm to get us or God's, I mean, storm to love us? Or do, how do we work through it? Or do we just do nothing? Or do we just say, throw me in the sea and see what happens? We'll, we'll figure that out together, I think, over the years. But... What the author of Jonah is going to show us now, I think, is the, the um, sailors are going to hurl all their cargo off the ship. And we're going to see these stages of the sailors mustering up some human effort to save themselves. Stages of human effort. So the first thing we'll see is they throw the cargo off the ship. The second thing we'll see is that they start crying out to their gods. And they're, and they're each got individual gods. So, so Jake is crying out to his God. And Elijah is crying out to his God. And all these guys are calling out to their, calling out to their gods. And they have this diversified portfolio of gods, really. And they, and they think that if they can just maybe hit the right one, then they'll be saved. If we just pray to all of them, eventually one of them will hear us. Because this is a storm sent by a god, and we need to pray to all the gods until we figure that one out. In fact, this is very similar. I mean, even in the New Testament, we see this. Um, you might remember in the book of Acts, Paul goes to Athens and he's in Athens and he was walking around and he's seeing all these statues that they worship to God and he notices the one statue to the unknown God. And so he tells the Athenians, you guys are religious people and I notice you have a statue to an unknown God. So they had that portfolio, but they even just to cover their butt even more said, we better pray to the unknown God. You know, maybe we missed that God in mythology class, you know, so let's just make a statue for him and then let's pray to all the God and then throw some, you know, coin over there as well, just in case we miss that God. And even the captain says that to Jonah. He goes down to the ship and says, Jonah, you need to get up and you need to pray to your God because who knows, maybe your God will be the one who hears us and maybe your God will be the one who saves us. And it is Jonah's God who will save them. And it is Jonah's God who will save the Ninevites, some of the most wicked, nasty people that ever walked the face of the planet. And it is Jonah's God that saved me. And it's Jonah's God that saved you or will save you if you need to be saved tonight. But nevertheless, back to our story, these sailors are working hard with their human effort to save themselves. And so they threw the cargo, they pray to their God, and finally they're going to try to figure out whose fault this is. So they cast lots. And of course, the lot falls to Jonah. So now they know there's a God that's mad at Jonah. And so they ask him a question. Who are you? Where are you from? What occupation are you? Who are your people? And Jonah answers the last question. We don't see that he answers all the other questions. And the last question is, what people are you? And he says, I am a Hebrew. But then Jonah says something that's going to strike more fear into the sailors. Like they were already afraid of the storm. 
But then Jonah's going to say something, and now they're going to be exceedingly afraid. They're going to be more afraid. And listen to what Jonah says. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. And I wonder if that's true, but I don't know. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For these men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Uh, Again, the author uses Hebrew literary techniques to increase the force of the fear. So they were afraid of the storm, but now they're exceedingly afraid of this God. He actually says, literally, they feared a great fear. So if you take a verb, fear, and then you add it to the noun, a great fear, and you put those together in one statement, you know, feared verb, a great fear noun, you got this big, right? So they collide together and make a bigness. So this author is saying that they were afraid, but now they're really afraid. Why are they afraid? Because now they know who it is. It's Yahweh. That's the word he uses for the word Lord there. It's the name of the God of the Hebrews. And he's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And that's a creedal statement that you see a lot in the Bible. But Jonah puts emphasis on the word sea. So you've got the God of heaven who made the sea. And he's mad at Jonah. And he's using the sea to get us. These sailors are afraid. Now, one thing I want to say is that in the Hebrew, it's real clear that the author's trying to show us that all human effort fails. They, they do all these things throughout the whole book of Jonah. Every time a human does something with an infinitive, every time they try to do something, that ultimately utterly fails. But every time the divine does something, every time God does something, that succeeds. I'll give you some examples. Jonah tried to run. That's going to fail. God tried to rescue him. That's going to succeed. The, the, these sailors are trying to save themselves. That's going to fail. God is going to save them. And God's going to do the ultimate thing by saving the Ninevites. As I said before, the most wicked, nastiest people that I could ever imagine. God's going to succeed in saving them. Think about that. He's going to succeed in getting these nasty people to fall on their knees and beg for mercy, and God will succeed and give it to them. Now, the last thing these sailors do is they ask him a few more questions, and they decide they're going to try to row back to land. This, and this is the most interesting thing to me because I think this is the way we do it. When we have storms, when we have effort, we're just going to try to, uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm very much like that. I once heard one author say, human beings are the only human beings who go faster when they're lost. And that's so me, you know, you get in a road, you're lost, you just drive faster to lostness. These guys think they're going to roll back to the land and they're missing something really because what's going to happen if they actually make it back to the land? You've got this storm on the sea, and it's violent. If they make it to the land, it's going to throw that ship up against the rocks and bust them into a thousand tiny little pieces. And an experienced sailor should know that. Most of the time, a ship is safer at sea than it is tied to some rock because it's going to pound it up against that rock. The other thing they're forgetting is that Jonah said that God is the God of heaven and of the sea and of the land. So if they flee from the presence of God... Still not learning that you can't do that. God's going to be at the land. And God's not done until God gets what he wants. And so these guys are missing that. So they try, but
but the waves just get stronger. And so finally they decide that it's not going to work anymore. And here's the question I have, and I want to discuss it. I think we could discuss it for hours, but we're not. I'm just going to ask a um, simple, maybe complex question to, to get us to talk about it. What does this story teach us about how we should operate within the storms? And maybe give some examples from your own experience. And, and, and where I'm struggling, I'm going to back this up so I don't waste your time. Where, where I'm struggling is, how do we know even if it's God's storm and I should, like, what if I got cancer? Am I supposed to say, oh, this is a grace from God. I guess I just need to trust in him. Or am I going to try to, like, you know, take chemo and go to a sweat lodge in Arizona or, you know, I'm going to eat organic or something like that. How, what, when does my, my self-made effort turn into the opposite of what God wants instead of just depending upon him? I mean, I have to do some effort, right? And so if we know that human effort doesn't work and divine effort does, you're going to have storms in your life. What do you think? And I don't know the answer. What do you think this story is teaching us? Is this complex? Complex? It's deep. Tonight we're going deep. In fact, I want to give a plug real quick if I can. We're not going to go deep enough in the next three minutes. Um, but, but one of our values here at Missio Day is to build authentic community. And we're restarting our community groups beginning this week. Uh, Monday night, we have one community group at the moment. Monday night, we're, we'll meet at my house from, what time is it? What time do we meet? Six? Okay, I forgot. It's been a while. We meet at six o'clock at my house, delicious food and, and, and delicious conversation. And the kids have a blast down in the basement. Um, and I want to talk then about how do we determine God's will for our life and how do we know if it's a storm is a good thing or a bad. I want to just really explore that. Why is it that so many of those crazy, stupid, insane Christian leaders can get on TV and say, the reason why those kids got shot in that school is because you took prayer out of school. You know what I'm saying? That stuff drives me insane. And yet, you could pull that out of the story if you're, if you're tracking with me. God's sending a storm because this happened. What about God's grace and God's mercy? And how do you play that out when there's tragedy that hits you or hits this country? And so we could talk about this for hours. So I want to invite you to participate in our community group. Okay, so um, just to conclude then, we need our last, our last hurl. And, and the last hurling is that Jonah tells these people to throw him or hurl him into the sea. So after all human effort has failed, finally the sailors say, all right, all right, all right, this isn't working. Maybe we should listen to what this prophet says and throw him into the sea. And this is very interesting because Jonah is the one who tells them, hurl me into the sea. So commentators have spilt a lot of ink trying to figure out what's going on in Jonah's psyche right here. And, and I can just narrow it down for you. The, the commentators will say, is he depressed and suicidal? Um, um, is he just so angry with God he doesn't care and he's going to stick it to God in one more way? Or is he trying to be heroic? You know, does he actually think, okay, save me, throw me in there, then you'll be saved. And the truth of the matter is the author doesn't tell us. We don't know what Jonah's thinking. I have no idea what Jonah's thinking. Why is he saying, hurl me into the sea and then the sea will be quiet for you? How does he even know that? And, and, and if Jonah is being suicidal or if he is being heroic, why doesn't Jonah just say, you know what, God, you've got my attention now. I'm sorry. I, I know now that you would not let me run from you. I know now what I need to do. Forgive. I'm moved by your extravagance. I will, go to, I will go to Nineveh. I think if Jonah would have done that from the boat out loud, it would have been a great testimony 
to those sailors, and I think God would have calmed the sea. I don't know, but I think he would. And then I think if Jonah would have looked at the sailors and said, hey, can y'all take me back to Joppa? I think they'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take you back. <laughs> I think they would. But Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me in. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what he's thinking, but one thing I do know is very, very fascinating to me. I think it will be to you as well. When Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, he uses a word for pick me up that he doesn't have to use. He could have used a number of words. He could have said, pick me up, right? Pick me up, but he doesn't use that word. He uses a very specific word. He uses the word nasah in Hebrew, which most of the time when we see the word nasah in Hebrew, it means to lift up, to bear up, or to carry. And it's often used in regards to carrying away sin or bearing sin, especially in regards to a scapegoat. A scapegoat in the Levitical time period, they would pray and, and put blood on the ear of this goat and they would slap him on the rear and he'd chase him out of town and all the sins of Israel would be run out of the camp, carried away, born out of there. And so Jonah says, lift me up, Nassah, and I will carry your sin. We see it in Psalms, for instance, 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. And that word forgiven is nasah, and whose sin is covered. Isaiah 53, everyone knows Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried, that's the word nasah, our sorrows. And, and, and I could literally put thousands of verses on there with this concept of carrying away, bearing sin, lifting up and taking sin away. So why does Jonah say, why does Jonah use that word? Jonah can't bear the sins of these sailors. He can't carry their sins off the boat. He can't even carry his own sins off the boat, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear my own sin so that you will be saved. We can't atone for our own sin, right? We cannot bear our own sin. Someone perfect has to atone for our sin, and Jonah can't do that. So why did Jonah say that? Well, what's interesting is Jonah can't carry our sin. Jonah can't bury our sin into the depths of the sea. But one greater than Jonah will come. Amen? And Jesus even said, one greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus literally says, I'm the true Jonah. I'm the one who can be lifted up on a pole. And I'm the one who can carry your sin and bury it into the depths of the sea. And we read that in Micah 7. He will bury our sins in the depths of the sea. Isn't that phenomenal? One... Um, author said this. At this point, Jonah takes up the role of the scapegoat and the sacrifices he makes saves the sailors. The sea really does calm down. What counts is that this story is in reality the precise hint of an infinitely vaster story, a story which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, but his attitude and his words announce is done literally by Jesus. Now, the parallelism between Jesus and Jonah, it, it, it's beginning just to tickle me, to tell you the truth. I had never seen this before. Jesus is all over the book of Jonah. And I was reading recently in a book by Timothy Keller entitled um, The King's Cross. You should read it if you haven't. He 
unpacks this famous story about Jesus who calms a storm. And he shows us the parallels, almost the exactness of these two stories. Uh, let, let me show it to you. We, we know this story, Jonah, we've been reading it. It says, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking onto the boat, into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. And so Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Do you see the parallels? Do you see almost the exactness of the two stories? Just to break it down for you, first of all, both Jesus and Jonah were on a boat. That's obvious, right? They're on a boat. Secondly, both boats were overtaken by, if you read the accounts, almost an identical storm. Massive. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. Why? I don't get this, actually. Both sailors woke up the sleeper with a rebuke. How can you be sleeping? Do you not care? Both experience a miraculous calming of the storm. They throw Jonah in. Silence. Jesus gets up. Silence. Silence. And then... Both sailors became even more terrified after the calming of the storm than they were when it was stormy. It just amazes me. These stories are exactly the same, except one very important thing is different. Jesus didn't get thrown into the sea. Or as Keller says, or did he? And he goes on to say, I think it's clear because Mark uses the exact same language that Mark is telling us he did. That when Jesus willingly went to the cross, it was the same thing as Jonah willingly being thrown into the sea. But Jesus can carry our burdens. Jesus can bear our sorrows. And so when Jesus died upon that cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm. He was thrown into the storm of sin and death, the only real storm that will overtake you. But Jesus was thrown into it to calm it so that you could have eternal life, so that you can have access to a relationship with this extravagant God who spares no expense to save you and to have you. And so tonight, as we continue to worship and as we partake of communion, we will take bread and, and we will drink of a cup that our Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to, to partake of. And he said, I want you to do it in remembrance of me, that, that, I, that this bread is my body, which I broke for you for the sin of many. He, he paid for our sin. And he says, and this cup is a cup that you will drink as my blood that I shed for you, that I could carry, that I could bury, that I could bear up your sin. So as we gather now to worship, if the band will, will come forward, I want you to worship as you feel led, praying to God. You do have sin that does need to be carried. 
The Apostle Paul tells us when we take of the body and when we partake of the cup, we should confess our sins. We should judge our bodies rightly because even though he's extravagant and even though he loves us, oh, how he loves us, we don't want to take advantage of his love and his mercy and his grace. And so we confess the sin and that sin sometimes causes storms in our lives. And you can bet your bottom dollar, he doesn't want those storms in your life. And then we might remember that he did bear and he was hurled into that storm.